Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here today with Tina Spring. And surprise, surprise, we don't have a guest today. We don't have a veterinarian. We don't have yet another specialist. We just have the two of us. And I thought we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about Tina's very unique dogs, her potcakes dogs, which are from the Bahamas. So I thought we would spend an episode talking about a little bit about them and how she got them and the origin of potcakes and what it means to uh, to have a dog that is perhaps a domestic dog, but maybe not a domesticated dog. Kind of the same so she got a twofer, both a domesticated and an undomesticated group. So, <laughs> so Tina, would you tell us what in the world is a pot cake? Sure. So um, I'll, it's easiest to explain it through kind of the history of how these dogs came to be. So um, first, everybody always goes, pot cake? What are you talking about? So let me first say that. So the islands on which these dogs reside kind of the island people traditionally just keep porridge cooking on a burner on the stove and the family eats off of that um, porridge. And, and just like if you and I make a stew or chili or whatever, the, the stuff that gets cooked to the bottom of the pot is called a pot cake. And these dogs get, did you love the cuckoo clock? So it's my grandfather's cuckoo clock. So it feels like love every time I hear it cuckoo. Um, so when you get down to the bottom of the pot, the island people chip that cake out of the bottom of the pan and they toss it to the dogs that reside on their property. Hence the name pot cake. And so um, my two are from Turks and Caicos, though pot cake can come from uh, you know, Abaco, they can come from any of the, bah- what was originally considered the Bahamian Island chain. They can come from Grenada, Puerto Rico, lots and lots of islands. Um, and it, and it is really fascinating. I'll talk about how they came to be, but it is really fascinating to me that when we look at feral dog populations kind of around the world, they homogenize down to this really predictable animal. So, when the dogs are kept in good weight, um, generally speaking, they're going to be somewhere between like 35 and 65 pounds, right? So big enough to take care of myself and to hunt, but not so big as to be difficult to maintain, right? So a good ideal size from a hunting and protecting myself perspective. Um, and they, I will say that that my experience of the pot cake is they're very easy keepers. And what I mean by that is that their systems are really efficient. So um, one of the biggest issues I see most often is that the dogs are pretty overweight. People are overfeeding them because if you compared and contrasted this really efficient dog, um, if you fed it what you fed the average American dog, that dog's going to be pretty fat. Um and all the, the problems that can come along with that. So so loosely, the way that these dogs came into being was after the American Revolutionary War, right? We, we kicked Britain out. Um, the Crown said to loyalists, people who still wanted to be British citizens, hey, if you don't like those upstart Yankees, um, pack up your households and come to the Bahamian Island chain and we'll give you land and you can stay loyal to the Crown. And so what appears to have been mostly Southern plantation owners packed up their slaves and their livestock and their dogs and their families, built ships and took seed and cows and horses and pigs and took them to the island chain and staked a claim and started their new life there. Um, And that included all of the variety of dogs that make for what you need on a plantation. So a hound, a, something that retrieves, maybe something that droves or herds a little bit, maybe something that does some ratting, something that um, maybe has a little bit of a protective influence, right? So loosely, we would say like for today's standards, we would say there's like, there's probably a little bit of terrier in there, 
Um, thinking more in terms of like Jack Russell or Feist. There's some hound, right? So traditional Southern hounds, um, maybe something labish, right? Or German Shepherdish. But that's about what we're looking at. And often, if you visually are looking at these dogs, you can kind of see hints of those traits showing up. So sadly, um, the Caucasian people did not have a resistance to malaria. And so lots of them then left the island. So they left the things that they couldn't immediately escape with. So that meant the dogs. And that's where really, for me, the pot cake story begins, because now we have these dogs who are on islands, so limited resources, and they're in competition, not only with other dogs, but also with the humans, right? Um, if I'm worried about catching the same chicken my dog is worried about catching, that is going to result in a contentious relationship. So, um, so un unfortunately, um, you know, the human did not, um, there were a pretty vicious species, I think, or, or at least can be when stressed, right. When, when being forced to fend for ourselves, like there's, there's a reason there's a whole bunch of us and no Neanderthals, right? Um, and so we were, we were, we're kind of vicious as a species, right? So, um, so the dogs and the people have not had um, a super friendly relationship. And, and so that, when we think in terms, when I think anyway, in terms of feral dogs, um, these are dogs who their fear responses are really, really big. Um and they kind of, they make the error that everything is a dragon mm -hmm. versus the sweet average, you know, puppy raised in someone's kitchen who defaults to everything is my best friend. Right. Right. Um, Which I found really interesting. If I may interrupt real quick. One of the things I, I find interesting is that um, you have to figure that there was a generation that after the, the white settlers had left and now there's sort of this almost well, there's this real tension, if not kind of war, for resources between those who remain and the dogs, right? So these dogs develop um, through experience a fear response to humans. Absolutely. And, and so it seems to me that you've got two things going on here. One, those who have the strongest fear response to humans are the ones who are most likely to be successful and to breed. So that you are actually selecting, there's a natural selection for that fear response. But I also am beginning to look at sort of microgenetics, and there might also be the influence of the actual fear itself changes some of the genetics for future yes. generations. So you've Absolutely. got it working in two different ways. So you yeah. have this dog who has sort of the, the natural selection for the dogs who are fearful, the ones who are most likely to survive, sort of your, your, your classic evolutionary pressures. But there's also this internal change that happens. And so I find that to be really interesting. The result being several well, generations of dogs who have survived because of this particular trait. Well, and, and, you know, the history is, I don't, I don't think any of us are happy about the history, right? Like none of us right. are defending it, but we also had the, the people who were left on Island, many of them, they're, they were slaves or ancestors or um, ancestors, their ancestors were slaves. And so I think many times dogs are used. We see this throughout history. Dogs are used to control humans that are, um, who are being treated as a lower class. Right. So right. Um, well, think about the plantations in Brazil and the, in the rise of the Brazil, the, the, Vila Brasilario, which was used, the breed, a South American breed, used in on plantations to control populations of slaves. Right. To keep people from, you know, trying to run away. So, so I, I think on the flip side of it, we also, to be fair to the humans, also have all that same genetic stuff. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. That they have learned to be wary of the dogs and that the dogs are dangerous. And so there are some really amazing organizations on islands who are doing amazing, great work about kind of the human piece of it, that that we ought not be menacing these dogs, that that 
spay neuter and vaccination and what it means to really humanely work with this population of dogs. Um, and then tons of dogs are being shipped off Island, which I think for lots of people is controversial. And for those of us who get to cuddle with one are like, woohoo. Um, but they are really, really different dogs. Um, one, Once again, pointing out the fact that there's there's never there's always unintended consequences to any given action. Nothing is actually pure good or pure evil. Usually, absolutely. there there are things that there people are doing to try to to make the best of a bad situation or a difficult situation. There are going to be consequences that are going to be that are going to make some people happy and some people unhappy. But there's rarely absolutely. the perfect solution. So there's some good stuff, right? The, they don't right. have rabies on island, so. Nice. There's not a big, huge risk that we're um, versus importing from some other locations. There's mm -hmm. some really big risks of bringing some really terrible diseases. We don't have that. Um, and Ehrlichia is here already. So it's not right. even you can't even blame importing these dogs on Ehrlichia showing up in the United States. It was here already. That's right. Um, so, so that's not a concern. One, by the way, a concern that on forums I hear about all the time, like, oh, you're bringing in all these, you know, tropical diseases. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, if you researched a little bit, you'd find out that's poppycock. Now, I will say that really <laughs> fascinating is that we see much bigger, much more often cases of hypothyroidism, huh. which is really fascinating, right? Because we have an island or, or individual islands that these dogs are on. So you have a relatively static population of genetics as well as a place where the things that stress thyroid are also growing pretty consistently. So um, we are seeing sometimes six and eight month old pot cake puppies that have severe thyroid issues. And, and, and all of the stuff that comes along with that. So not necessarily physical signs that there's a problem, right? They're, we're not seeing a rat tail and a bald spot and right. that's in, you know, thinning hair over the kidneys. We're not necessarily seeing that, but what we are seeing is all of this like super big fear responses. So owning these dogs does require a certain amount of advocacy with one's veterinarian because they're not used to checking thyroid in an eight or a 10 month old puppy. And yet we kind of need to rule that out when it's a known health issue for this group of dogs that the average vet's never even heard right. of, you know? Right. I mean, well, I was also going to say, do you have, do they have a problem with um, cortisol levels? Do they have tend to have elevated cortisol levels? So I don't know that anybody's testing for it. I would assume so. I would assume so too. I would yeah. too. The other thing is I want to point out about domestic dogs. One of the reasons why domestic dogs have been so successful with humans and why they've been our longest term domesticated animal and been so important to humans across the globe is the fact is there's not a lot of zoonotic transfer, meaning that there's not a lot of diseases that transfer between dogs to humans. And, and yeah, there aren't a ton. It's not like bringing a guinea pig in. Right. Or, you know, they think about some of the things like, you know, like, and so that there are other species that really tend to cause some serious problems or that like Ebola jumped from monkeys to humans. Um, dogs have been really successful about not bringing a whole lot of deadly or difficult diseases to the human population. And right. I think that there, there are the ones we all know to worry about, like, yeah. you know, but so, so. Yeah, like with these dogs, generally, I would say they're pretty healthy. We do see increased rates of cancer. We mm -hmm. do see increased rates, like I said, of hypothyroidism. We do see ehrlichiosis, right, which, thank goodness, for the most part, is pretty easily treated with doxycycline. Right. Um, very rarely do we see heartworm, which is really fascinating. But, of course, then they come to the States, and if they're not on a preventative, they'll get it. Right. Um but you but know what? Most dogs if the, in the United States, whether they come from the Bahamas or not, if you're not on a preventative, you're putting your dog at a huge risk for a yes. very, very deadly disease. And so, nasty, like difficult yes. to treat, right? It is really difficult to treat. Okay, my, my question is, is if you do, have these dogs that are, are have this high fear response, so therefore I would think that they have a fairly high internal stress because people are everywhere. And if I'm afraid of people, then I'm like, I'm afraid a good deal of the time 
or at least I'm on high alert because like these, 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 these things, these two legged things are pretty unpredictable. And so what I'm wondering is if the increase in cancer and hyperthyroidism isn't partly due to the stress level that these dogs are under. I'm sure. Right. Um, and so one of the things that I'm often counseling families about like loosely, right. And there are pot cake people who listen to the, um, to the podcast. So, Hey, shout out to y'all. You rock. Like I know these dogs aren't easy, but they are oh so worth it. Um, is like with any other fearful dog, we start by making the dog feel safe. Right. Um, and, and I think the human, our sweet arrogance, right. Is we go, well, but the dog shouldn't be afraid of my husband or the dog <laughs> shouldn't be afraid of the trash can. And, and while I completely and totally understand where that's coming from, they are. Yes. And, that's and, it. and we can't be angry at them. I mean, we can, it just doesn't serve any useful purpose to be angry about what, like, it's like not all dogs that are afraid of men are abused by men. They're not, they're just not as familiar. Right. right. And it guys could are be really a, different, are. joyfully different. Right. Um, so, so, so we start, I, I say this, oh my goodness. I probably say this 10 times a day. We start by making the dog's world small and safe, and then we try to make it bigger. And until you make any learner feel safe, whatever that means for them, you kind of can't do the other pieces or you're very likely to get fear aggression. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's fascinating to me is the adult dogs that come off Island. So pretty regularly, there's a dog who hangs around at a tourist location for a period of time. And that dog decides to hitch its wagon to some tourist and the tourist will, you know, either get that dog into rescue on Island or move them or get them somewhere that they're safe, that they can, they can be with a, a human, um, who's safe. And those dogs, we do see big fear. We don't see the reactivity. And I, what I think that is, is that they have their, the dog has made the decision. The dog, not, not on a human level, but sat and thought to itself in some doggy way, my life is better in the company of those things that are so rude, (laughs) (laughs) right? But they eat well. So, (laughs) so, um, so So there's a, so when we're working with these dogs, I'm a lot of times saying to people, you are always going to be a dragon to your dog. Like even to your own dog who you love and you buy bonies for, and you give, you, you love them. You're still a dragon. Your goal is to be their favorite dragon. And then to convince them that, you know, other really awesome dragons. So do I take my pot cake all the same places I take the pug? Absolutely not, because the pug thinks that everyone is in the world to love him and tell him how cute he is and feed him cookies. My pot cake think humans are in the world to terrify them. Yes. And I will also say nothing loves you like a feral dog. Like these dogs need us, in my experience, much more like our children do. And they absolutely adore us. And so probably the most heartbreaking thing for me is when a family ends up with a dog who doesn't feel comfortable even in that family's household. Mm, that is and very that, sad to me, too. Yeah, no, it's it, it, and it's heartbreaking for everybody. It's heartbreaking for everybody. It's heartbreaking for the dogs. It's heartbreaking for the dog trainer. It's heartbreaking for the family. Like nobody gets one of these dogs going. Well, I'm going to make this dog's life harder, but I do think, you know, they're, they're not, they are absolutely not for everyone. Um, and while I love and admire them, they're not easy. Right. Well, why don't you, I can understand that, but why don't you get a little bit more specific? I think that one of the things is, is I think people are getting the drift of why they're not easy. Um, because they have a different perspective on the world. But can you give us some examples about how they may differ than your your average domesticated dog that you would get from the pound in the United States? So you may end up with a dog that you have to completely sedate to do veterinary care. Ah. 
Okay. You may, you may end up with a dog who has a small circle of humans who it trusts and it is profoundly uncomfortable with everyone else. And so now maybe going on a vacation is difficult. That's right. Because who takes care of the dog unless you take the, or it's also too, well, then we'll take the dog with us. That might not be much of a solution either, because if the dog is that uncomfortable, taking him to a whole bunch of new places with new people that we don't know, and it smells funny, and it looks funny, and it sounds funny, and there's full of people that I don't, I'm pretty sure I don't like, how much fun is that? Right. Well, and some of them are very social. Um, We have two. One is definitely far more social than the other. Um, They're, they're really different kiddos, but they're also really similar kiddos. Um, and I have different routines by which to introduce new people to each of them. Mm-hmm. The, the issue is when you start doing trigger stacking, right? When it starts right. to be new people and invasive handling in a new place with weird smells and weird sounds and it, the amount of work it takes to get through all of that following the dog's lead is really difficult. So where I see people really, truly struggle is they've always had a, a typical, you know, lab mix or German Shepherd mix that they could take everywhere and they could trust with everyone. And now all of a sudden they've got one of these dogs where that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, and there are some that are super social, right? There, there are absolutely. They're just more resilient. Um, if there was one word I could burn down for these dogs, it would be socialization, right? Because far more often these dogs are way more sensitive and less forgiving and less resilient than the average dog you're going to go grab at the shelter. And so beautifully kind, warm, well-intentioned people scare the living daylights out of these dogs. And these dogs remember because they are genetically predisposed to remember. So, and if you scare them, they're not going to forget and they're not going to trust you the same way. That's right. That's right. So So, kind of like we have a 1976 car, right? It, it has mechanical fuel injection. It, it, it doesn't have all of the driver aids that a 2019 or 2020 car has. It does not suffer fools well. So, um, If you know what you're doing, the car is beautifully, awesomely responsive. If you're not paying attention, it's going to get you. Like you're Mm going to scare yourself and you're going to get yourself into trouble. These dogs, like if you have a trainer who kind of loosely understands positive reinforcement, but isn't so great at reading signaling, they'll ruin your dog. And God forbid you get in the hands of someone who punishes fear. Right. Right. Someone who doesn't understand that almost all fear response or aggressive response is fear based. And that when you punish fear, you make it worse. So you get dogs that in the wrong hands become spectacularly unpredictable. Right. Right. So I guess my my next question would be is most of the dogs that the people would get pod cakes, are they adult dogs or are they puppies? And what are some of the special challenges for puppies if you were to happen to get a puppy pot cake? So, um, yeah, most are puppies. Most are flown <laughs> off island. Um, the big thing will be that the traditional puppy class is probably going to be too much too fast, though okay. it might be great, right? Cortisol levels seem in these puppies – to shift earlier. So think more in terms of like an Australian shepherd puppy or a a German shepherd puppy versus an Irish setter, right? Which arguably at 17, their cortisol levels haven't shifted yet. Um, (laughs) Or the pug, right? (laughs) Who I think cortisol levels shift at six. Um, So so you want to talk a little bit about what you, what you mean by cortisol shift? Sure. Sure. So, so socialization is not something you do. It's a developmental stage. Um, mammals, when they're born, are not afraid of anything or they wouldn't approach their mother who needs to caretake them or their, or their father. I suppose there are some species where dads take a big role in caretaking. Uh, start or uh, seahorses. There you go. Seahorses. Right. So, um, 
So prime socialization, which is what in the dog world most of us are talking about, starts when puppy's eyes and ears open at about three weeks and continues until cortisol levels shift in the brain. Um, and that seems, the research I've read, maybe what you've read is different, says loosely that that's going to happen between 11 weeks and 27 weeks. Right. On average, 16 weeks. Right. And that when that door closes, when cortisol levels shift, you can no, you're no longer in prime socialization. Meeting and experiencing new things um, is no longer as easy. It's not, it's not front weighted to a positive. Instead, right. it's front weighted in my experience to a big negative. And yes, I'll give I a would agree. example, right? So when we have little, little kids, right, that first year you set them on Santa or the Easter bunny or the team mascots lap and you get amazing cute pictures, Mickey mouse, right? You get amazing photos. If you try to repeat that experience a year later, it's like you're feeding them to a dragon. Yes. Right. So, so ki little kids don't go from it's super easy to experience new things to typical to, to like you and I meeting a new thing. They don't, they swing back and forth to these opposite extremes and dogs in my experience do that too. So mm -hmm. it's why the puppy goes from sitting and watching the thing that they're not sure about to barking at it and closing the distance or barking at it and running away. Right. Right. So once those cortisol levels shift, then you, you are left with classical conditioning, counter conditioning, right. desensitize, take things more slowly. Right. So great trainers and behavior professionals are empowering families to read their individual dog stress signaling so that they're to a certain extent following that animal's lead of right. are you feeling comfortable are you feeling confident to help them stretch a little bit mm -hmm. people who are less skilled not less well-meaning by the way just not as skilled yeah. they've lived their life, their experience has been with dogs that are more resilient. They could get a little bit messy about it. And so um, they're not always so good at reading those stress responses. And those stress responses are really, really important, especially Absolutely. in these dogs. But, right. but in any breed that we tend to view as um, more fragile, more sensitive, um, dachshunds, chihuahuas, um, I, I think German Shepherds are extraordinary. German sensitive. Shepherds, absolutely. I would say actually pretty much all the herders. Yes, right? yes. Because you have just to be a very little sensitive. Something. Right. But the other thing is, is these are dogs who are also, not only are they supposed to be a little bit afraid of it, but they're also, they are trained to watch very carefully for, for signals from those animals that they are watching. So they're watching all kinds of other dogs and they're watching people and, and we read things really well. And, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm really thinking that um, there's an alarm here. And I don't know why you people are not seeing this because did you see what right. that dog did? That dog lip licked at me. It's like, like it's a nine one one. It's like right. um, the dog had a treat. So I'm really not thinking that the lip, but you know, but no, I mean, it's better to be safe than sorry, because if he lip licks right. again, it could mean that, you know, he's, and these dogs are just hypersensitive. And you have these people who will say, I don't understand. Well, you know, I, 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 or why, why, why? And I'm like, I don't know why, why, why? I just know that, that, that he is. And we have to start with where the dog is, not where you think he perhaps ought to be. Right. And, and I will say, so for example, um, when my old dogs passed away, I needed both for me personally, but for my business, a highly social dog. I needed one. And I, I could pull on the pot cake's nose as long as I want to. They're not going to suddenly become elephants. So <laughs> I went to a specific breed rescue for a breed pug that generally speaking are, if anything, overly social, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe perhaps foolish and obnoxious in that regard sometimes. I didn't, I wasn't concerned for a moment that I had the, the sophistication and skill to train the dog. I didn't care if the dog was well-trained or not. I cared 
if the dog was social. And so Mm -hmm. I pulled a social dog so that if we're on a walk and I have a pot cake and Christopher has the pug and the little girls next door come out who are dog crazy, we can, Christopher can take big long strides and deposit the pug into the children and I can sneak away with the pot cake so that I'm getting, I have it, we joke, it's not serious, it's a joke, but he's the sacrificial pug. He takes <laughs> all pressure socially off of the pot cake. We they had don't a dog. have to like everybody. Yeah, we and had so- a dog like that too, that when we had, um, we used to call him our Confederate trenching setter because we found him in a Confederate trench on the Chancellorsville battlefield near our house in Virginia. And he was some sort of Gordon setter Cocker Spaniel mix loved everyone. Whereas our toller at the time, our Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever, was very leery. So it was great because I'm not big on extended leashes, but we used to put Rebel on the extended leash so that when we would encounter people, we could let Rebel go ahead and meet people and we could hang back with Molly and, you know, kind of see if she was really to move up to meet people or not. So I get that. There's something really nice about having an overly social dog that um, takes the pressure off the not a social dog. And we had that same experience with my flat coat Bingley and then our burner Buckley. Everybody would swoon over Buckley and he loved it. And Bingley just hung back with me because whether he liked people, he wasn't the same way. And then people say, oh, I'm so sorry. You're beautiful, too. And Bing's like, whatever. You know, we're out on a walk. This is serious business. And uh, it's it's so it's it's nice to have that pressure taken off of you and the dog that doesn't want to be the center of attention. And that's absolutely fine. Right. right. And what I would say is I almost all of the pocket I've worked with and I've worked with quite a few over the years now, they all well, one, they mature really slowly. So so Marco is six he really feels like a two and a half year old dog. Like, you know, that weird, they're kind of adults, but they're kind of not. And they're still really flexible in behavior. I would absolutely say that that's true of this dog. I personally, my working theory is that his anxiety is high enough that it slows down learning and maturity. That that development just slowed by worrying about, you know, every little, you know, blade of grass. So managing arousal um, and learning how to teach these dogs to have what I joyfully refer to as a spam folder. Like he go, (laughs) these dogs don't have a spam folder. They are answering all of the emails, even the ones about erectile dysfunction. And these boys were neutered a long time ago, right? Like (laughs) they've never even been to Nigeria and yet they are laboriously responding to every email that the environment sends them. So teaching these dogs and, and actually Suzanne Clothier has written beautifully on this subject, just seasoning the dog and giving them measured exposures where they take in experience and go, Oh, so maybe it's not a nine one one. And I will say about the pug, like it's really funny. He doesn't really worry about anything. So it's sometimes it's really funny in the household. Something will happen and the two pocket turn and look at each other. And of course, what are they doing? Each one's going, we're going to die, right? <laughs> like they're both flipping out. And the pugs go in, wait, what? Are there cookies? Right? <laughs> Once they look at the pug, the pug's not worried. And they go, oh, maybe we're being a little bit foolish. So so I will say that, that pairing a confident, mm-hmm. stable dog with a dog that's worried, especially a feral dog, if you can make, if you can find that right match, blesses the dogs. Because mm-hmm. honestly, for a feral dog, the pug is actually more, um, has the, more gravitas. He, right. he actually convinces them way better than I do. Like, I don't have the same credibility another dog does to the pot cake. Right. Right. Well, it's kind of like the pot cake is is their emotional support animal. Right. Right. And that brings me to another statement. And I will and somebody's going to get mad. And I love you all enough to say I'm going to stand by this statement. You cannot take 
a crazy, sensitive, stressed out animal and make it a dang emotional support animal. I agree. Like you just can't, it's unfair and it's unkind and it's going to end badly. So maybe you have that one in a million pot cake who's like bomb proof and social and happy. And I think that's awesome. Like bully you. I think that's great. But generally speaking, no, you can't take a feral dog who's struggling on their own to manage a, you know, normal human environment and try to make them support you or a family member in your own need. Like it, it doesn't work very well. It doesn't work very well. The other thing is, is you can't take just any dog and turn them either in, if, if not into emotional support animal, you also can't take any dog and decide you are going to be a therapy dog or you are going to be a service dog. Because I think there are certain requirements on those animals that that are very special and that you can't just say, this is, I'm going to get myself a lab from the, um, you know, the pound and train it to be a therapy dog or train it to be my service dog. Then work that way. And no, I, I don't think people realize that 97% of the purpose bred dogs for those jobs fail. Yes, Absolutely. If you look at and and uh, canine um, for the blind, they're the ones who probably set the best standard for that. That uh, they have a, like yeah yeah ninety three percent fail rate, and they have dogs. I remember um, there was a a friend of mine got one of the dogs. Turned out to be fabulous dog, fabulous family dog. Right. It was dismissed because it did what? One time it stiffened over a food bowl. One time that was it. That was enough to disqualify it. Right. I mean, they they get disqualified over all sorts of things. I guess I usually interrelate it to like being a brain surgeon, right? Being a brain surgeon, do you have to be brilliantly smart? Yes. But do you have to have great vision, like actual physical, like acuity to your vision? Yes. But you also have to have an amazing amount of dexterity. Mm. You also have to have an amazing amount of um, ability to stand and work in really specific positions for a very long time. Like that endurance is really important. So just because someone flunks out <laughs> of being a brain mm-hmm. surgeon, there could be all sorts of reasons why. That's um, right. The stress of carrying that job. So, you know, when people email me or call me and say, oh, we want to turn our dog into a service dog, or we want to turn our dog into an emotional support animal, or we want to make our dog a therapy dog. Um, I I often find myself maybe cringing a little bit. um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, starting to work through, well, if we ask the dog, is that a career the dog's been laying on the dog bed chewing a water buffalo horn, mulling over. Um, My Jack Russell, who passed away last year at 17 and a half, like my staff referred to him as sweetness and light. As up until he was about 18 months old, he and I, he went everywhere. Whoosh, whoosh doors didn't bother him. We could go to nursing homes. He would let everybody and their brother throw a ball for him and he'd jump on their laps if they asked him. And he really, really enjoyed it. And then one day something crashed and fell over and he got worried and that's all it took. And, and within three Mm -hmm. or four visits, even with conditioning, even with my handling skill, he said, you know what, this isn't for me. And I said, okay, well then you don't have to do it. Yes. If my if if I have in my heart that heart of service to go to retirement homes or read with kids or whatever, then then what I would tell the average family is go find a dog who has those attributes already. Right. And add that dog to your household because that dog, the dog who will sit and listen to your granddaughter read or color for five hours, not not every dog's going to be comfortable doing that. Right. Right. So lots of them like I'm going to go look at squirrels. <laughs> right. Which having read for hours with my granddaughter, sometimes I just want to go look at the squirrels. So, you know, and I'm a grandmother. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you're like, could you color a dog? Yeah. So, 
So she has me draw pictures for her. And it was very sweet because she, she had me draw a bunch of unicorns and then she said she wanted to take them home. And I was just at her house the other day and um, she had the, she hung them up in her room. Plus, she insisted that her mom and dad hang up one of them in their room. So um, anyway, that was kind of that, that's neither here nor there. But I guess what it boils down to is that um, the pod cakes are a, a very special breed and you have to understand what you're getting into before you were you would be able to uh, to adopt one of these dogs. But I think the bigger so you thing do, is... I don't think you ever really know, right? Like any right. puppy, you're buying potential. Like when you guys were looking for Clemmy, when you were looking for Zuzu as a puppy, you you got a puppy, right? And, well, no, and that, I didn't with Zuzu. Zuzu came to oh, me. Okay. Yeah, no, you don't know how Zuzu came to me? This is no. kind of... My Bingley, my beloved flat coat, died of cancer in uh 2016 and i was a total wreck a total wreck and um so my husband bless his heart he, he gets lots of uh, husband points for this uh looked at me and went you are you are one heck of a mess so he took me to ireland for two weeks to demess me um it kind i don't of know i think i might fake the wounding <laughs> that's right anyway so we get back and and um, we're dogless at this point because his dog had died of cancer in January. And so I called the breeder to ask her what her breeding plans were for flat coats because I knew I had to have another flat coat. And she said, well, she was talking about, and actually Bingley's sister was being bred. And so that was very tempting. But she said, I do have this other dog. And she's about 16 months old. Or at that time, she's about 14 months old. And I've decided I can't breed her. And I kind of, you know, I have enough dogs. I, I feel like she could really, I don't have enough time for her that I feel like she would do much better in a house with a trainer, with somebody who could give her more of the focused attention that she needs. Cause she's a little bit like squirrel, what, huh? You know, little bing, she's over here and bing, she's over there and she's, she's special. So she said, and there's only one person, maybe there are only two people, you or my pet sitter, but really you're the only person I'd consider giving her to. So I was very flattered. I think it was a threat though. I'm not sure. But um, anyway, she might have been being punished. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I said, but she wasn't sure who wouldn't let her go. And I said, Judy, whatever you do, um, you know, make sure that this is what you want to do, that you are ready to part with her. Cause I'm not going to say yes and take your dog and then have you go, Oh my God, that was a big mistake. So she thought about it and she thought no. And so that was also the fall that my uh, granddaughter, the one who I drew the unicorns for, uh, she was born. So I went up and helped my daughter and son-in-law for several weeks. And then the day after Thanksgiving, I went and I got Zuzu and she was 16 months old. And this is one of the first dogs, one of the dogs we've gotten in a long time that, oh, and there he is. There he is. You're so, you're so handsome um, that uh, we didn't get as a puppy. Um, but nonetheless, Zuzu came with some special needs. Uh, she, um, she she's a little bit nervous, and um, she uh, came to a house with um, there were four adults and four kids from a house that had two adults and nine dogs and no other children. So it was a really difficult transition in some ways for Zuzu. Um, but no, she didn't come as a puppy, and she um, came with some some special needs. But it's funny because. She's a natural mother. She's been a great mother to both. She was a great mother to Bear and she was a great mother to Zuzu or to to Clemmy. Sometimes she says, Clemmy, you need to sit down and I'm going to hold you here and I need to lick your face because, you know, you 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 need need to be good cleaning. You do because you kind of smell. But uh, (laughs) so it's kind of in some ways too bad she couldn't be a mother. But you you spend any amount of time with Zuzu and you're like, yeah, mm -hmm, good you didn't breed her. Um, it's hard to put your finger on it, but there's just like, yeah, got it. You know, you're so sweet and you're so special and it's so good that there's just one of you, sweetheart, you know, and I remember (laughs) when we went to, um, Westminster last year and I went to watch the, the judging of the flat coats because Judy had a couple dogs in the ring and I'm watching these gorgeous dogs and they're, you know, they're just they're the best of the best. I mean, they're at Westminster. They gotta be good dogs, right? So I'm watching them go work around the ring, and I just my first thought was, "Ah, oh, Zuzu, you're so smart. You just you chose the right career as house dog here, sweetheart. <laughs> it's just 
<laughs> everything that you should be. And, um, you know, and every, and then the, 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 my favorite story about the Platties at Westminster, which I probably told before, I'm going to tell real quick, is Flatcoat's tails never stop moving. They're always waving in the breeds, right? Wave, wave, wave. And they're the happiest, happiest of the breeds. I love them that way. So they were all in the, all in the ring, and they're all looking at their people, and they're all smiling, and their tails are all going at the same time. And then one looks, and his tail stops, and everybody looks, everybody's tail stops. You can count one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, and then they all look back at the table. Start going. <laughs> the order has been processed. Yes. So, anyway, now that's how I got Zuzu. But yeah, Clemmy was definitely we we searched for a puppy, and you know, yeah, it's it's although you know you you give this the specs to the to the to the breeder and what you're looking for, it's it's always a bit of a crapshoot. It is, get- and and honestly, one a a traumatic event will change that puppy forever. I don't care yes. what any behavior pro tells you, you can change. You can just like a single traumatic event can change any human forever. Correct. Even with the best of support and the best of caretaking. And honestly, like we don't know what makes some kids fall on their bike and never get on a bicycle again. And what makes other kids wipe the dirt off, lick the blood off and get back on their bike and ride right away. Some of that stuff, like we, you just can't predict. Right. So, we did a wonderful podcast with Patricia McConnell on trauma, and we'll link to that for, to this one, talking about those great. very those very things that you just. A lot of it just depends um, on on where you are. Like I was working out with my trainer this morning, and oh, you would have thought I had never lifted a weight in my life. I was everything seemed like thirteen times heavier than what it had normally been when we first started. And I'm like, what is going on with me? I don't understand why everything is so hard today and she said there are just so many factors there's just so many factors involved and it just you know that's the confluence for today tomorrow may be very different and i think that's the way it is with with trauma is that sometimes it can hit at times when you are emotionally or you know physically mentally you you're ready for that challenge where there are other times you know your hormones may be way off base or you're particularly fatigued or you just had a traumatic experience just prior to that or a very sad emotional experience so that when this new trauma hits, your body is completely and your mind is completely unprepared for it and cannot process it. Well, and I do think being a foster parent for a short period of time, being an adoptive parent of um, a child that was in social services, I think it did give me a really, um, there was a helpful perspective of understanding like for these dogs, for, for Marco and for Jack, um, the act of being rescued was traumatic. Now, do I, am I absolutely eternally grateful that some amazing human beings coalesced together to rescue these two puppies for them to, you know, come and lay on my bed and cuddle me? Absolutely. But I, I think we sometimes miss that that is a trauma for them because mm-hmm. if, if their mother, if their grandmother, if their great, great grandmother, if their grandfather, if, if their whole life experience has been, people are scary, right? Being captured and, and the, the care that goes into it, they need to be flea dipped. They need to be dipped for ticks. They need to be vaccinated. They they need to be handled. They need to be cleaned up. All of that stuff is probably pretty darn overwhelming um, right. and makes a big impression. So, for example, lots of pot cakes you, are very difficult to give a bath. Like, very difficult. They're like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> Marco tries to climb the Formica. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> it's right. And so, like, I... And and I spent eight months, eight months conditioning, like, no, 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 chicken happens in the bathroom, right? Like, we've, I've done tons of work on it, and it's really just only so good. So there, right. dogs are not like people, dogs are not infinitely adjustable. And so what I would say is, if you are considering a feral dog, if if what I am about to say doesn't work for you, don't do it. Understand that those dogs are born feral. 
and they will die feral. And no amount of having them in your house changes that feralness. There will absolutely be things that you will not be able to do with that dog. Absolutely. I'll guarantee it to to you. They will also, if you will throw caution to the wind, they will teach you about love and trust and how to care for another living thing in a completely different way. They will give far more than they take from you, but they are special. And if, and if, uh, there are, I have lived my life, the pug, right? I, it, it's for me. It's like, does he get loved and lots of cookies and giggled at and cuddled and all the good things? Yes. But the, his, his position in this house is to serve a really specific need that's kind of selfish if I was to be completely honest, right? I, I don't get to do that to the two pocket. They, they, they get to, I get to spend my life in their company, um, versus they are my dog. They, they they are my dogs, but they, they don't actually need me. Got it. And so I have to be more careful. I have to be more mindful and it made, it has made me a better human being. It has definitely made me a better dog trainer. Um, it's made me way more empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't just railroad through stuff. Wow. Well, that was very interesting, Tina. Thank you so much for sharing about your pot cakes. Um, I really learned a lot today. And um, we kind of meandered down a few rabbit holes. We, we did end up coming back to the pot cake. So, uh, so that's good. So thank you very much for sharing all that. That's great information. Um, we will have some, uh, I'd love a picture as our, for one of oh, your I'm puppies. For, so we'll have, photos. we'll have that as our, as our, uh, our episode picture. We'll do a link for, for on trauma with Patricia McConnell and um, any other information on pot cakes. Um, we will have links for that as well. So thanks. And we'll see you all next time on your family dog. Thanks for listening to your family dog. Got questions, interesting ideas, visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.